All right, we are going to be in Luke 15, uh, and this is, well, three of the four commentaries I was using this week called this the most famous parable of all time. Um, so this is a parable that I'm guessing, even if you're not that familiar with church, you've at least heard reference, the prodigal son. And this is a parable that I myself have heard, I've shared with you guys, I grew up a pastor's kid, I'm about as church insider as you can get. I couldn't even begin to tell you how many times I've heard this parable. Um, but... This is the beauty of God's word, the, the depth and the richness of God's word, that even this, this parable that is so familiar, as I was reading this, this week and studying it this week, I learned so many new things that just took this deeper. Um, and so my prayer is that that will be true for all of us this morning. And so even if, even if right now I say the prodigal son and your mind goes to, yeah, yeah, I know it, and you start to tune out, right? You do the, the TV, the picture in picture, where you still have the one channel up there, but you're also watching something else over here, like, no, let's make sure that we listen to this. And my prayer is going to be that we listen with fresh ears, because I really feel like that's what God did for me this week, um, which it was incredible. And it's a long passage, so rather than read it now and then pray, we're just going to start with prayer, and then what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through the passage. We're going to read a section of Luke 15 of this parable, and then we're going to talk about it. And so definitely keep a finger, a bookmark, you know, whatever have you in Luke 15, um, because we will be there regularly. But before we begin, please join me in prayer. God, you are holy, holy, holy. Your word is living and active, and we thank you for that. And so God, now use your living, active word that's sharper than any double-edged sword to pierce through to us, to cut away everything else and get to our heart. Lord, would we, would we listen to this with fresh ears? Would we see this with fresh eyes? Lead us in understanding, God. Teach us in this time. Hide me. Get rid of me entirely. Let this be about you. Whatever baggage we brought with us today, remove it from our minds the distractions that the enemy wants to use to keep us from engaging and worshiping you, remove those, Lord. Let this be a time where we are just prostrate before your throne, offering ourselves as a sacrifice. We trust you with this teaching. We ask that it would be from you. It's only through you that it's possible. It's only by you that it's possible. And we just ask that it would be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Luke 15, starting in verse 11, this is Jesus speaking. And this, this parable is the third, it's, you know, you hear one-two punch. Jesus kind of went with a one-two-three punch. He's talking to Pharisees and scribes and leaders. He's talking to the religious leaders. What have I said time and time again? Context is essential. You have to understand the context of Scripture. So the context of this is Jesus is talking to the people who have the biggest problem with him. And he gives a one, two, three, I mean, back to back to back parable to these people. And this is the third one. This is kind of the culmination, right? It sets up or it finishes everything he set up in the first two parables. And it just, I mean, he drops it like a bomb on this crowd listening. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Pretty straightforward. But again, we have to understand the context. And this is where there's a book, uh, it's by Kenneth Bailey. 
remember this, write it down. We'll send it out in an email when we send our follow-up video. But Kenneth Bailey wrote a book called The Cross and the Prodigal. And what makes Kenneth Bailey's perspective on this so fascinating is that he spent the vast majority of his life as a missionary to the Middle East. He spent the vast majority of his life, and not just the Middle East like the cities, but the peasant nomadic villages and tribes that Jesus would have been talking about in this. So Kenneth Bailey spent most of his life living in the very culture that Jesus is talking about. And he said that in this book, he says that this, this parable was his favorite one to talk about with these people because through their eyes, he gained such a richer understanding of this. And so this was his favorite one to go through with them because it connected the best with this culture because it was so antithetical to what they were used to. And the first thing that we see in this, there was a father, a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, what did he say? He said, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He's asking for his inheritance, but he doesn't use that word. See, because inheritance in this culture, in this, this culture that Jesus lived in, this culture that Jesus taught in, this culture that his audience lived in and was from, in this culture, inheritance carried this massive weight of responsibility. You know, now when we get our inheritance, right, when my, when my parents eventually pass and we get our inheritance, which my dad always jokes, he's like, man, I went from being a youth pastor to a college professor. Like, if I have change in my cup holder, that's your inheritance, right? But whenever I get the inheritance, I get just the inheritance. I'm going to get the fiscal, right? Like, I'm not going to get my parents' house, and I'm not going to get all these properties and all these herds. But back then, inheritance wasn't just fiscal. Inheritance really, it was tied up and they didn't have banks. So the inheritance would have been acres and flocks and shepherds who worked for the family and maybe a couple different businesses and things like that. So inheritance, when you received your inheritance, really what you received was responsibility. And it was, hey, you're now in charge of this. This is now under your oversight. You now have to manage all this. You now have taken an increased place of importance in the lives of all of this. This is now something, I mean, this is a big deal. Inheritance was responsibility. And the word inheritance is used regularly in the New Testament, 14 times. 14 times in the Gospels, they talk about inheritance. But there's a different word that Jesus used here, and it's the only time it's used in the Gospels. And it's a word that doesn't mean inheritance with responsibility. It means wealth. So what this younger son is saying to the father is, I want the privilege of being your son. I want the rewards that are coming my way, but don't come near me with that responsibility nonsense. He asks the father, he says, give me the wealth that will eventually come to me. Okay, and we've got to ask ourselves. We'll see throughout this parable, we, I mean, really, I, I see far too much of myself in each of the two sons at different times in life. We have to ask ourselves, is that an approach we take with God? God, I want the power. I want the, I want the privilege. I want the rewards. I want the good stuff, but I don't want the responsibility. Okay, like, look, just give me the wealth that is coming to me, but don't ask anything of me. This is what the younger son says to the father. And it even shows, it shows the depth of his selfishness. Because as I said, all of the family's prosperity would have been tied up in flocks and in properties and things like that. It wouldn't have been, the dad couldn't have gone and just written a check and that was done. In order to give his son this wealth, he would have had to liquidate all these assets. And Kenneth Bailey observes that this would be a devastation to the family. 
because accumulated economic gains of generations would be lost in a few days. What does it say? The son asked him, he says, give me the share of the property, and then says, not many days later. So this isn't a three-month, six-month, one-year process. This is on a Monday, Dad, give me my money. And Wednesday, Thursday, okay, here it is. And Kenneth Bailey notes, based on what he learned working in these tribes, for in the East where days are sometimes spent in bargaining over the smallest transaction, and this is something that the villagers actually taught him. This is a phrase that these people taught Kenneth Bailey. The man who sells quickly sells cheaply. So the dad took a big hit in doing this. The family took a big hit. Not just the dad, but the family would have taken a massive loss in granting this son's complete self-centered desire. And so you have a heart here presented in this younger son that doesn't care about anyone. It's all about him. I don't care what happens to the family. I don't care how many lives I ruin. I don't care about the jobs that I just destroyed. I don't care about the generations that I just ruined. It's about me. Give me my money, and I'm gone. Kenneth Bailey shares a fascinating interaction. So that's part one. This is part one. This is the younger son. And we see the depth, the depravity of sin in this younger son. But then we see really everything that happens in this is unexpected behavior in this first part. Because not, not only is the younger son's behavior unexpected, the father's response is totally unexpected. This is why Kenneth Bailey says he loves talking about this with Middle Eastern village culture people. And this is the conversation. He's like, okay, so if this, when he, when he preaches on this, he says, would this happen? He says, and every time they say, no, that would never happen. He's like, no, no, seriously, like how many of you know where a younger son came and said this to the father? Like, no, it doesn't happen. He's like, all right, well, let's hypothesize, right? Imagine with me, if someone did, if a younger son did say this, what would be the next step? And he says every single time they response, oh, the father would beat him. I mean, the father would just, the father would, and not beat him privately, because the son has now insulted the whole name of this family. The father would very publicly beat this son. They're like, that, that's what would happen. If a son did this, dad's going to whoop on him badly. But not the father in the parable. The father in the parable does the absolute unthinkable. See, the son just invited all this shame. Middle Eastern culture is very much about shame and, and pride, right? It's, you know, two sides of the same coin. It's very much about honor. It's an honor culture. And so what this son did was this son just opened the door for all of this shame and disrespect and devaluation to be associated with the family name. And the father had a responsibility to restore that respect and honor to the family name. And, and the way he did that was... He firmly drew the line that the son's behavior is unacceptable, and so he beat him. And that would restore the family to honor within the village, within the culture. Instead, the father takes the shame on himself. The son has opened the door for the shame, and even if the father beat him, the village would still scorn that younger son. They would still know, wait a minute, you're the son who tried to ruin your family for selfish gains. So the son would still bear that shame, but the father takes the shame on himself. He takes the insult on himself. He takes the indignity of all this on himself by granting his son's request. Kenneth Bailey points out that every time he gets to this point in the parable, for people who have never heard it before, they're like, wait, you need to reread that. There's no way the father granted his son's request. But we see the father's willingness to take this penalty instead of it being on his son, and he grants his son's request. But there's one more person in the first part of this story. How many sons did the father have? 
Sam, he's not mentioned in these verses. What do you mean he has a part in this? No, he's, he's got a total failing in this as well. Remember when I said that everybody behaved unexpectedly? The younger son behaved unexpectedly, inappropriately. The father behaved unexpectedly. So did the older brother. Because again, this was an honor culture. This was a, a family honor culture. And, and so the older brother was honor-bound According to culture, according to this setting, the older brother was honor-bound to intervene immediately. The moment the younger son did this, I mean, the, the moment he did this, the moment this conversation became public knowledge, the older brother should have immediately rushed in to mediate reconciliation. Mediators are huge in this culture. And a mediator was chosen based on the closeness of relationship to each of the, the parties who were, you know, butting heads. So it would have been, okay, you know, like Addie and, and Sarah have an issue. Who's the closest to each of them? They're now the mediator, right? So there's nobody closest to the younger brother and the father than the older brother. This is, this is the closest family relative. So now you have an absolute duty to rush in and pursue reconciliation between these two parties. Kenneth Bailey asks these villages, these cultures, he says, okay, so if this did happen and the father didn't beat him, what's the next step? And they're like, oh, the older brother immediately sets up mediation. I mean, the older brother immediately, like the story ends there. The older brother doesn't allow the younger son to go through with this. Even if dad liquidates the properties and gives him the money, the older brother comes in and says, no, 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 you don't get to do this. We're going to reconcile this. We're going to figure this out. And the older brother completely rejects this duty and this responsibility. It's an absolute dereliction of duty on behalf of the older brother. Well, maybe he hated his younger brother. Maybe he had a big problem with his younger brother. And so he was like, yeah, good riddance, right? Like, see ya. But it doesn't matter because in this culture, out of respect for his father, he still should have pursued reconciliation. So the older brother doesn't like fall off the rails at the end of this story. The older brother's in the wrong place from the complete start of this story because he has a responsibility that he wants nothing to do with and just allows it to happen. And where we have to ask ourselves, in the first part of this story, have we rejected our responsibility? Corinthians says this. I mean, really, when you consider this, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Christians, we need to ask ourselves, if you're a believer, if you're listening online, if you're here in person, you're a believer, you need to ask yourself, have I done what is my responsibility with the message of reconciliation? When I know people who aren't right with God, when I know people who have broken fellowship with the Father, when I know the younger son who has broken fellowship with the father, do I immediately rush in to pursue reconciliation? And do I tirelessly pursue reconciliation? See, the older brother didn't have the option of, hey, you know, I, we don't know their names, so we're going to call them, uh, we'll use me and my brother, Sam and Joe, right? Like, all right, those are two, and that way I don't actually insult anybody here by using your name, right? Like, so Joe insults our father, he breaks fellowship with my father, do I immediately rush in and say, Joe, we need to pursue reconciliation? Joe's like, no, I'm good. All right, well, I tried. No, 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 I don't stop. I'm like, no, I will physically keep you from leaving because I am bound to pursue reconciliation. This is my responsibility. This is the mantle I have been given. Scripture tells us that we have been given the mantle of responsibility of reconciliation. 
God, this isn't from people. I'm not giving you the message of reconciliation and the responsibility of reconciliation. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The older brother completely neglected his responsibilities. Has the church done the same? Are we relentlessly pursuing reconciliation between the lost world and the Father? This is what happens in the first part of the story. And then we come to the second part, the middle part. And we'll go, I won't read all these verses. So not many days later, the younger son, this is back in verse 13, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Whenever, when he spent everything, a famine begins. He can't find work. He can't find food. So he lowers himself. He goes to a citizen of the village of this land where he's now living in. And when it says far country, he would have gone to somewhere where he's not a native. And they would have known what culture, they would have known he's coming from the Jewish culture, and so he goes to a non-Jewish country. And when you look at the language used for a citizen of this foreign country offered him a job, basically he was trying to get rid of this kid. Because in Jewish culture, pork was a no-no. You didn't, you didn't touch pigs, you didn't have anything to do with pigs. No, unclean. Jewish person is not going to go near pigs. And so this citizen who knows the Jewish culture intentionally offers him a job that this kid should reject because it's so insulting to him. But instead, the kid takes it, still can't feed himself. He's come so close that he's close to eating the food of the pigs. Things are going terribly for him, right? This is what happens. These are the consequences of breaking fellowship with the father. And he finally comes to his senses. And in verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Oh, it sounds good. Right? He comes to his senses. He gets it. But he doesn't. See, he's motivated by, I'm in need. Things aren't going well for me. If I want my situation to improve, what's his solution? Does his solution stop at, I will return to my father and apologize and repent, and then we'll see how my father responds? No, no, no. He's come up with the solution in his mind. I'll go back to my dad and I will work off this debt. Because there was one way in the culture of this time, remember the context, in the culture of this time, the culture of this family, the culture of this individual, there was one way he could restore his name through labor, through slave labor. If he went back to his dad and publicly declared in front of everybody, I was wrong, I accept the shame that I have brought on myself, I am now an indentured servant to my father, we'll figure out the financial debt, you know, okay, you owe me this much, if you work for me for 17 years, slate's clean. And then when he worked for 17 years, then he would be restored to, all right, well now, you know, we won't reject you anymore because you have worked off your debt. You yourself, through your own effort, through your own blood, sweat, and tears, you have worked off, you have righted this wrong you committed. And this is the son's solution. Oh, I can work my way to restoration. I can white-knuckle my way through determination and effort to restoring my proper place in society, my proper fellowship with my father if I work hard enough. And I got to wonder if we don't take the same approach to God. God, I, if I just, if I work hard enough, if I work hard enough at this, and this is maybe for non-believers who are with us or listening online, you can't. I can't. I certainly never have. I, I mean, goodness, if restoration of fellowship with God was dependent on my efforts, no. 
Not a chance it's going to happen. And if you're, if you're allowing the enemy to deceive you into thinking that you can, nobody else can, but you're the exception. You're the special exception. You can work hard enough to make things right. You can't. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that none may boast. Scripture is abundantly clear. We don't have a chance of this. But the younger son still doesn't get it. Because he doesn't understand the depth of what he did. Because he's still being self-centered in this. He's still thinking, okay, how do I improve my situation? Oh, it's simple, by working. I can pull myself up and I can fix things based on who I am and how hard I am willing to work to write this. This is my solution. So he sets off to pursue this solution. He sets off to pursue this restoration, this path. And here we come to, I think, my favorite verse in this whole parable. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. How does he see him if he's not looking for him? While he was still, the son didn't have to come up to the door and knock on the door and say, hey, dad, I'm home. Can we, can we come to some sort of economic agreement where I can restore myself? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Because his father never took his eyes off him. I mean, yeah, when he was in a far country, his father in this parable couldn't literally see him. But what Jesus is saying is God's looking for the sinner. God's pursuing the sinner. God has never stopped loving the sinner. The one in need of restoration, the one who broke the fellowship, me. When I broke fellowship with God in my sin, God was looking for me. While I was still a long way off, God saw me. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And this, this is incredible. Because remember when the father took the shame on himself at the start by allowing his son to go through with this? Well, here's how that son should have been restored to the village. Here's how he should have, here's how in this culture, in this culture, here's what would have happened when the son came back home. He would have walked down the road, and he walked into the village, and when he, when he came back, when he pursued this idea of restoration, everyone would have gathered in the public space. And the son would have presented his case, and the elders of the village would have stood there. The leaders of the village would have stood there, and they would have very publicly turned their back on the son. And then it would have all gone to the father, and all eyes would have turned to the father. And as the father, see, the village would have said, no, we reject you. You have brought shame on yourself. You have brought shame on your family. We want nothing to do with you. We are publicly declaring, we don't want you. And then everybody would have looked to the father. And does the father do the same thing? Does the father turn his back? Or does he allow the son to come and kneel as a hired servant? So there would have been shame for this son, even in the returning. The father would certainly not go to him. I mean, the father wouldn't even go to him in a chariot or, you know, carried by servants or with a retinue of servants. Like, no, you're the wrong party. You come to me. That's how this is going to go. The father runs to the son. The father takes the indignity 
of this restoration of fellowship. The indignity of the cross. Crucifixion, which was reserved for the worst of criminals. The lowest of the low. The scorn of that. The mocking. The spitting. The abuse. The condemnation. The Father takes this on Himself. Because to run in that culture... He would have worn long robes with a shorter under his, his underwear underneath. And in order to run, he would have had to bunch up his robes and hold them in his hand while he ran. So everybody's seeing his drawers flapping in the wind. For a dignified leader in this community, this is humiliating. You don't do this? Are you kidding me? But where's the father's focus? The father's focus is on the restoration of the fellowship with his son. So the father runs, he sprints, and the word Luke uses is actually the word that they used for the foot races, like the, the athletes in the stadia, the foot races, that's the word Luke uses. So the father's not, you know, kind of like power walk. He's full-blown sprint, Usain Bolt, I'm getting through this village, I'm getting to my son, we're restoring this fellowship. This is what the father does. And then when he gets to him, he kisses him. And this is where, again, our culture really affects our understanding of this, right? Because guys don't kiss each other, right? Like, you just don't. Kissing's not a part of our culture. Kissing is a huge part of this culture. It was a way to show affection and friendship. So if I have you over for house, I would greet you with a kiss when you came in, and then I would, you know, send you away with a kiss. Friends would kiss, like, hey, we get together for lunch. I'm glad to see you. You mean a lot to me. And, but it would be a very forceful uh, we'll restore some, you know, for, for our sensibility. It was a manly kiss. Like, it was like a, yeah, kiss, I'm happy to see you, right? Like, there's power to this, because that's how men kiss. Men kiss like we're kind of trying to fight, but I'm happy to see you. That's how a man would kiss his son in this culture. That's how a man would kiss his friend in this culture. That's not the word Luke uses here, or rather Jesus uses. Jesus uses a word for kiss tenderly and affectionately. This is the kiss that a mom would use with a little child. And the word that he uses, it also means to kiss again and again. So again, Bailey notes that when they get to this point and he reads, they read this word in their language, they're like, no, that's not what, no. That's not how a dad kisses his son. But Jesus says, no, he gets to his son and he weeps and he kisses him again and again and again with just a tenderness. And what that reveals in this moment is the depth of the Father's love for the Son. And it reveals the heart that has endured the pain of broken fellowship for so long. The heart that is overjoyed at the restoration of this fellowship. The heart that has longed for nothing but the restoration of this fellowship. This is the word that Jesus uses. And this is what finally breaks the younger son. The younger son, when he sees this pain that the father has suffered, he starts to go through his speech, but he stops it short. He says, Father, I've wronged you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he ends there. Because he sees the father's heart. And there are some translators, there are some commentaries that say the father interrupted him and cut him off before he could finish. Um, there's not a whole lot of linguistic evidence for that. That's more of kind of like a personal opinion. Uh, and honestly, there's not, I'm not saying, that might be the case. It might have been that the father did jump in and cut him off. We don't know that one way or the other. What we know is that the son got two-thirds of the way through his speech and then the conversation ended. And this is where, again, we just see the heart of the father. 
You see, God always desires and offers reconciliation and restoration. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19? Here are the other half of those verses. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, not counting their trespasses. The Father would have had every right to wash His hands of the Son. If the parable had ended with, and the Son came back and offered Himself as a hired hand, and the Father said, nope, get out of here, the people listening would have been like, yeah, I'm tracking. That makes sense. The Father had every right to see the Son break fellowship. The son broke fellowship. The son sinned against the father. The father had every right to say, all right, your choice, you're done. Bye. Instead, he doesn't. Instead, he pursues reconciliation. God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 1 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God's desire, God's heart, God's offer is perpetually reconciliation and restoration. You see, it's not just reconciliation like, okay, we're, we're on speaking terms again, but yeah, get in the field. You're my slave now. No, what does the father say? So the father pursues this. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you. But the father said to his servants. So his servants are with him. His servants are right there. So this isn't a private moment. Nothing that happened in this culture, in this village culture, nothing that happened would be private. The servants are there. This is, this is happening in a crowd of people. The father turned to the servants and said, Bring quickly the best robe. That would have been one of his own. And not just one of his own, like, ah, it doesn't fit me anymore. Like, he's saying, hey, my nicest suit, go get it. This needs to go on my son. Bring the best robe. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Every one of those items would have spoke volumes to the people. The best robe, this was the father's own finest robe. This was reserved for guests of honor. If you want to see this culture talk about the best robe, read Esther, Esther 6, 1 through 9. And you'll see an example of what the best robe would have meant to these people when they hear it. And then he says, put a ring on his finger. So, so the robe demonstrates, no, he is restored to a place of honor and prominence. He's telling the servants, this is someone who you will honor. Put the best robe on him. Then he says, put a ring on his finger. Put a signet ring on his finger. Genesis 41. Look at this culture's relationship with signet rings. This is a symbol of the restoration of authority. This is not just a guest of honor. This is a guest of honor who has authority now. I restore to him authority and he says, put shoes on his feet. Why? The son offered, I will work for you as a hired servant. Hired servants didn't get shoes. They went barefoot. Only the family got to wear footwear. Only the family got to wear sandals. So the father is saying, restore to him honor. I restore to him authority. Why? Because I restore him to full sonship. Put shoes on his feet. This is my son. And then he says, bring the fattened calf. 
So this family was well enough off that they had a calf that was reserved, that was set aside for, we're just going to butter that thing up so that when it comes time to celebrate, we're ready to go. This is throw the biggest party that we can throw because we are restored. We have seen the restoration of fellowship with my son. This is a reason to celebrate. And the incredible thing is, only the Father can do this. The Son couldn't have restored Himself. The Son had no right to show up and say, you know, give me the robe, give me the ring, bring me shoes. Only the Father can do this. The Son showed up in filthy rags, and the Father clothed them in splendor. Isaiah 64, 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like filthy rags. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This parable is the entirety of Scripture. The Son shows up in filthiness with nothing to offer. And the Father looks at him and restores him and clothes him with splendor and honor and authority. Why? Not because the Son did anything to earn this, but because this is who the Father is. And now the story gets good, right? Now everything's better. No. Let's revisit that older brother who completely abandoned and neglected his duties back at the start of this and once again does so. Because see, the oldest son in a family, when a family in this culture threw a feast, threw a celebration... Everyone in the family had a responsibility. Even if you couldn't stay for the party, if, uh, if the Belsterling, actually, we only have the two of us right now, so that won't do a whole lot. Phil, can I use your family, the Calendines? Calendines throw a big party for everyone, right? When we show up at the Calendines' home, the whole family is, and we're talking kids who no longer live at home, we're talking cut, like the family is present to greet you and thank you for coming to our family's celebration. You don't miss this. It doesn't matter, you know, right? Like Dawson's got something. He can't stay for the party. But Dawson is going to be there to say, hey, thank you for coming to my family celebration. I appreciate you and value your presence, right? Walker's still there. Everybody else is still there. Dawson can't stay, but Dawson's still going to make sure he is there to greet everyone because that's what you do. Not the older son. The older son says, nope. I'm not showing up to that. How do we know that? He was out in the fields working. Maybe he didn't know about the party. Now, the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So for the second time, the older brother says, No, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to. This is about me. The, older, I mean, the younger son, we see a heart of selfishness and ego and pride. We see the exact same heart in the older brother. The older brother is never once better than the younger brother in this whole story. I mean, it's not like the older brother messes up now because he had it right before. Like, no, the older brother has never made the right decisions. And once again, by saying this, not only is he insulting the guests, right? Like, not only is he insulting the guests, he's insulting for the second time his father. Because he's saying, I don't care about my dad. I don't care about what's important to him. I don't care where my father's heart is. I don't care what my father wants to see happen. My father wants to restore him, good for him. He can take a hike. Not me. I'm not going into that party. So for the second time, the older son completely rejects 
the father and insults the father. So what would happen? Bailey would ask the crowd, what would happen? Oh, well, now the dad would beat the older son. And he'd be done with the older son. But once again, what's the father do? And if you want to see an example of the Syrian, Sam, are you exaggerating? Read Esther 1. Read, read the first chapter of Esther and look at what happened when a family member wouldn't show up to a feast like they were supposed to. Read Esther 1 to see how this culture dealt with a family member neglecting to show up to a feast to honor the guests and honor the host. So the crowd's like, yeah, now the father's really going to whoop on the older son. Now he, he asked for it, but what's the father do? He refused. He was angry and he refused to come in. His father came out and entreated him. Once again, the father takes on the shame of this situation. Okay, maybe the older son refuses to come into the feast for a little bit, but then he comes in. So what he does to restore this honor is he comes in before the father in view of the guests and he apologizes to the father and then he apologizes to the guests. And all the shame of the moment is on the younger son or on the older son. The father would never go out to the older son, but this father does. And the father goes out and he entreats him. And that word entreat is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We implore you, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is a deep request from the heart. This is not, come on, man. This is, please, this matters. This is the only thing that matters. This is the most important thing. I mean, the father should never do this. The older brother should have realized how wrong he was and he should have gone to the father in view of the party guests and implored the father to forgive him. And instead, the father goes out to the older son and he entreats the older son, please restore this fellowship. I want this restored. Why don't you? Why is your heart not burdened for this? He entreats him to come in and join this celebration of the restoration. And this is really where we see, remember last week's conversation where we looked at what's your motivation? If you missed last week's message, one of the questions we asked is, what motivates you? Why do you do what you do? Do we see that the older son served the father because he loved him? No. What's he say? He says, I worked for years for you and you never threw a feast for me. And when he says, I worked for you, he doesn't just say, I worked for you. This isn't a loving father-son relationship. He actually uses the word for slave. So he doesn't even view himself, he doesn't even view this man as his father. He's like, look, I was a slave for you and you never threw me a party. God, I did all this for you. I sacrificed for you. I tithed, I served. Why did they get the promotion? Why did they get the pay raise? Why did they get to go on vacations? How come they get all the blessings that I should be due? Where's my party, God? Where's my pay raise? Why do I have health problems and they don't? God, give me what's coming to me. Why, why don't you love me? Because the older brother is completely self-absorbed. And the father, when he responds to him, the father says to him, he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, I've slaved for you, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fat and clay. He won't even call him his brother. The older, the older son wants nothing to do with the younger son. He won't, even, he won't even say, look, when my brother came back, he said, when your son when your son returned, you celebrate him like this and you won't celebrate me? He spent all your money on prostitutes. Older brother doesn't know that. Side note, how does he know that? He doesn't. He made it up. 
One, the family didn't know how the brother spent. He could have spent it gambling. He could have invested in a shipping company. Like The Bible doesn't say how he spent his money. He just says he squandered it in reckless living. So the older son is now making things up about this younger son because he's so angry at him and wants nothing to do with that fellowship. So now he's making things up about the younger son who has seen a restoration of fellowship to condemn the father. God, I, I, I'm sure he doesn't give like I do. I'm sure he doesn't serve like I do. You don't know that. I don't know that. But this is what the older son does. No, no, no. I won't restore fellowship with my younger brother, and I'm rejecting fellowship with you. Why won't you do the same? How's the father respond? The father replies, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The love that the father has for the younger son in no way, shape, or form diminishes the love for the older son. And that word that he uses there, son, is a very special term. The word son is used 14, or 15 times, I think, in, in these kind of, not necessarily this story specifically, but in this, in this conversation and the parables that surround it. Son is used frequently in this time in Jesus' ministry. When you look at all these events going on, you know, kind of in this chronology, he's regularly talking about sons and fathers. Right? Remember, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, if anyone does not hate his son more than me. So there's a word for son that's just a very generic son. And this is a fact. This is, he is my son. This word is used every other time in this story that Jesus is telling, except for here. Here the father uses a word. Jesus uses a word that means my beloved son. The son who I delight. I mean, this is a tender word. This is, I love you with the intensity of all the love I have. Everything I have is yours. You've always been with me. There's never been a moment where I didn't love you. Jesus ate with the sinners, right? Right? Yeah? Yeah? They accuse him. You're, oh, look at this guy. He eats with sinners. He's friends with sinners. You know how many times it talks about Jesus went into a Pharisee's home for a meal? How many times Jesus was walking with the Pharisees and talking with the Pharisees? See, just because Jesus associated with sinners doesn't mean that he wanted nothing to do with the Pharisees. He ate with them. Salvation wasn't reserved for just this. It was like if a Pharisee would have come to Jesus and said, yeah, you know what? I repent. You're the Messiah. Jesus wouldn't have said, well, too bad. No. God's love was for everybody. Jesus fellowshiped with everyone. The, the salvation that he offers is for the younger son and the older son. But the older son refuses to accept this. And the father lets him. The father lets him say, I was your slave. The father says, you never celebrated me. The, the, what the father corrects is he says, your brother. See, he reminds the older brother, no, this isn't just my son. This is your brother. The father says to him, he says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father reminds the brother, this is someone you should love. You should delight in his restoration to the family. This is your brother. Guys, are there people that God has to remind us, why aren't you delighting in this? Why, why doesn't this make your heart leap for joy? I've got a friend in another place in Scripture. Jesus uses a parable about a, a manager who hires laborers. And he hires the one guy, you know, he hires one group at the start of the day and he says, hey, I'll pay you a hundred bucks to work today. And then a couple hours later, he hires another group. He says, hey, I'll pay you a hundred bucks to work today. And throughout the day, he, at four different times, he hires groups of people and he says, hey, I'll pay you a hundred bucks to work for me. 
And at the end of the day, they all line up to receive their wages and he pays out a hundred bucks to everybody. And the people who started at the start of the day say, wait a minute, how come the people who started at the end of the day get paid just as much as us? And the whole point is that salvation is God's to offer. And he's using it to illustrate that salvation is freely offered, whether you accept it when you're five or you accept it when you're 90. And I had a friend who was very honest, and she said, you know, I wrestled with that passage for a little bit, because there are times where I'm like, that's, man, I accepted Jesus when I was young. I, you know, I tithed, I served, I did all this. Like, I've lived my whole life for Jesus. It seems, you know, I, I should get the reward of heaven. And then somebody accepts Jesus when they're, you know, 93, and they've got six months left, like, and they get, like, and she was very honest. She was like, that kind of bothered me a little bit, or I didn't, couldn't wrap my mind around it. And then her grandpa accepted Jesus at 92 with like a week to live. She was like, and then I was really okay with that parable. And I love that. I love that honesty. Because I think we need to be honest that a lot of times we're like the older brother who are like, look, why are we celebrating him? He spent years doing everything that you call us not to do, Jesus, and now I'm just supposed to forget that? I know who he was for the last 30, 40 years of his life. And now I'm supposed to be happy when he walks through the doors of the church and wants to come, hey, I accepted Jesus, isn't that great? Well, let's have you work off that debt. I, I remember who you used to be. This is what the older brother does. And then something happens that, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of this. But the story just ends. Jesus doesn't give the conclusion, right? I mean, like, talk about cliffhangers. Jesus gives this conversation, and he says that he says, the father says this to the older son. Look, your brother came back. Your brother is alive. We're celebrating this, and then the story ends. Isn't there a part of you that's like, well, how'd the older brother respond? Did he ever go in and join the feast? Did he ever, did, did he ever get it? Did the older brother, like, we want redemption in our movies, we want redemption in the books we read. And so there's a part of me that I'm like, well, what the, what the older brother do? When the father presents this, how do you react? Well, in Jesus' time, the older brother arrested and mocked and beat and executed the father. I mean, that's how the Pharisees reacted to Jesus. Jesus says to them, look, I've always been for you. I've always loved you. Salvation is for everyone. And the older brother chose to reject the Messiah, chose to reject the Father, chose to reject this ministry of reconciliation, this message of reconciliation that God has entrusted to us. So the question then is, okay, well, how will the story end in our lives? How will the story end in our time? In this parable, the older brother per perpetually and constantly rejected his responsibilities in reconciliation. He rejected restoration of fellowship with his brother. He rejected restoration of fellowship with his father. Because for the older brother, as much as the younger brother, it was all about him. Church, God has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. God has given us a responsibility to take this message of reconciliation to the younger brother of this world. The younger brother in your life who you want to write off I know what they did. Do you really or are you making assumptions? And maybe you do really know. So what? What did they do that's any different than the sin that you had that broke fellowship with the Father? 
God reconciled himself to us through Christ. God then entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. So this week, I want you to read 2 Corinthians 5. We read multiple verses from it, so you should recognize part of it. But I want you to read 2 Corinthians 5, and I want you to ask yourself, do I need to repent like the younger son? I mean, am I at a place, is there something in my life, is there an element, maybe I've repented on the big scale, but is there something in my life that I need to repent like the younger son? And I need to pursue restoration of fellowship with the father. Or maybe, maybe we find ourselves in the position of the older son and we refuse to be that mediator of reconciliation. Mm -mm. Jesus can reconcile everybody else except for him. Except for my brother. My brother's hurt the family too much. My coworker has hurt me too much. My neighbor has hurt me too much. My sister has hurt me too much. So-and-so has done too much. I'm not going to pursue reconciliation with them. We'll leave that for somebody else. Are we like the older son? My prayer is we'd be like the father. Please join me. God, make us like you. I mean, remind us, Lord, that we showed up in front of you in filthy rags, that we showed up in front of you with nothing to offer, that we came before you in polluted, stained garments. And you restored us. We broke fellowship with you and you restored us because of your great love for us. God, forgive us for when we hold back reconciliation from others. Forgive us for when we want nothing to do with the restoration of fellowship with other people or seeing other people restored in fellowship to you. Forgive us. Would you burden us with a sense of this message that you have entrusted to us? May we be people who seek reconciliation, who offer reconciliation, and who celebrate when that happens. It's in Jesus' name we pray.